Welcome to the Leadership Window podcast with Dr. Patrick Jinks. Each week through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and a professional speaker. And now, here's Dr. Patrick Jinks. Hello, everyone. Hope your summer is going awesome. This is episode 71 of the Leadership Window podcast. Thanks for joining us along. I'm, uh, I'm excited about this next conversation. I'm, uh, I'm really sort of, I'm, I'm really impressed about what my next guest is doing. I think it's a really unique tie-in to the social sector. My guest today is Gari Manglik. And Gari has dedicated her, her life, or certainly her career, to building intuitive and delightful user experiences. And when I say user experiences, perhaps the first thing you think about is some kind of software. We think of a user experience, we think of an app, or we think of software, and the user experience that we have, you know, we think about user interface, we think about customer service, we think about usefulness of these different products. That's what Gari has dedicated her career to. And what's really cool is, yes, she's a, she's a software developer and she's started a couple of companies around software, but somewhere along the journey, and we'll hear it from her, she's connected, she's intersected her, her entrepreneurial vision, her software technical competencies and vision with mission in the social sector. Because now she is the co-founder and CEO at a company called Instrumental. And it's a software uh, product or platform that now serves over 2,000 nonprofits. And it's really become a favorite tool among a lot of grant seekers. So if your nonprofit does a lot of grants, you have a grant manager or a grant writer, maybe it's you, um, you're going to want to listen to this episode, not just to subscribe or get instrumental, although you may want to do that, but this, we're going to talk about the mindset uh, a, a good bit about the grant seeking mindset around connecting how do we find the right grants we're going to talk a little bit about prospecting and and matching and and tracking and and managing all in in sort of one place so i'm going to let gari tell you more about herself herself but um now you can see why i'm why i'm really excited about having her here so gari welcome to the show thanks for carving out time all the way from Berkeley, California. So it's, um, it's three hours earlier for you. And, um, but thanks for, thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Well, I'm just going to get dive right in and, and I'm just going to turn it to you and say, tell us more about you, your journey, kind of what, what got you to this point at Instrumental. And, um, and as you do that, just kind of walk us into what Instrumental is and why you're doing this today. Sure. Yeah. So I, for most of my life, wanted to be a basketball player <laughs> and uh, entered college uh, realizing that that was not going to be possible for me and ended up taking at the, at the encouragement of my dad, ended up taking some computer science classes, uh, so studied, ended up studying computer science and uh, really just kind of was going through college just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And my last semester, senior year, I discovered that there was a kind of an entrepreneurship class in the business school. And I 
got some friends together. I, I like kind of rallied some people to take it with me. I was really excited about it, even though I had never started a company before. Like I was not a kid that like had a lemonade stand or whatever. <laughs> um, somehow, like as soon as that became something that was right in front of me, an opportunity to learn more about business and entrepreneurship, uh, that seemed very appealing. So I took that class and one thing that was pretty cool about that class, even though it was in the business school, uh, there was a lot of people from the computer science department. So when we formed teams, my team happened to have a lot of people who could actually build a product. And that ended up being a very um, serendipitous and helpful thing for me to experience uh, what it would be like to actually build something quickly, get feedback from the market quickly, and to actually get that startup bug. So I graduated from college uh, and I had a job at a finance company to work there as a developer. And I was also trying to work on this startup from that I had started in the class on the side. And I lasted about six weeks at my finance job and then decided to go full time on the startup. And the reality was that I just was so into it that I like really couldn't kind of focus on anything else. Um, I worked on that for a couple of years with with a lot of the same people that were from that class originally. And we went through a talent acquisition with Airbnb. So I moved out from New York to the West Coast, worked at Airbnb for a couple of years. It was a great time, great time to be part of that company. It was growing very quickly, um, great culture, great team, and like best in class, like product and engineering talent that I got to be around. And then while I was at Airbnb, I met my co-founder, uh, who is now my wife uh, personally, and she was excited about the um, the idea initially of helping to make it easier for scientists to connect with the right funding. And she connected with another co-founder, Catherine, and we're working on a crowdfunding platform for female scientists. They both had been in academia, the nonprofit space, and what Angela had also worked at as a, at a funder giving out grants. And they felt like overall the funding models for like academia and the philanthropic sector were very inefficient and were working on that overall problem. And I was advising from afar initially uh, since it was their first tech company. Um, but the more that I got introduced uh, to the market, the especially when we started to go more in the direction of um, of kind of philanthropy uh, and then and then nonprofits, uh, the more I started to see how the a lot of the best practices that I was seeing in at Airbnb and my previous company and just being in the kind of tech startup ecosystem as a whole, where you're very like obsessed with delivering value for your customers, uh, delivering great product experiences. I just wasn't really seeing that as much in the nonprofit tech space. And I was excited to kind of to kind of try to bring that to this to this market because um, it seemed like there was a lot of opportunity. It also seemed like a really um, rewarding market and customer base to build for uh, because of course, if they're successful using their products, they're successful with their with their missions and their organizations. Um, and yeah, Instrumental Today uh, is a SaaS platform that helps nonprofits do all things grants from prospecting to researching to tracking and management, reporting, collaboration, all in one place. We want to take the work out of grants for you. Man, okay. I can almost guarantee you that most, if not all of our listeners during that introduction lit up at least a couple of times. One was when you talked about the inefficiencies in the whole fund development world. 
Um, I, I know they experience that. Many of them experience that on the grant management side. And even on the grant writing side, there are so many funders, for example, that make the funding application process much more difficult than it needs to be. Um, not in all cases, but in, but in some cases. And then um, just the, the inefficiencies of yeah, particularly government grants and some of the compliance things that nonprofits feel like they have to jump through hoops and those kinds of things. So I, I know that they, they perked up when you said that. I know I did. And then the other thing that you talked about was not really seeing the kind of um, best practices in user experience in the tech world through the, through the nonprofit lens. And uh, so many of the organizations that I work with use fundraising or donor management software, for example. That's not the same thing as grant management software, but the the um, I came up through the United Way world. I don't know how familiar you are with United Way and that network supporting a lot of different organizations, but. Uh, so many of the software programs that United Ways use across the country, they're so unhappy with. And so I, I'm sure they lit up and went, oh my gosh, it's so refreshing. Uh, this lady knows what we're talking about. <laughs> she gets it. So that's very cool. Say more about instrumental though. Um, first of all, for our non-tech people, um, you said it's a, you, you used the acronym SAS. Um, so if you can sort of explain what that is. And then second, say a little bit more about what instrumental is as a software product. Just, just a little bit meme. Yes, it's a, it's an all in one, but what would users, for example, expect to experience? What's it like to be, is this a subscriber based sort of thing? Is it a, you know, is it a one-off application that, that they install and it's a one and done? How, what would they experience? as an instrumental customer and, and what is SaaS for those people that might not know? Sure, yeah. SaaS is software as a service and it pretty much just means that it's software that you can access through the internet. Um, tip, and typically there's, you access it through some sort of subscription. And so, you know, if you're using Razor's Edge or Salesforce uh, or um, any sort of like other tool for work, typically it'll be a SaaS platform. Okay. And, and I'm guessing you have different levels of subscription for the sort of di various aspects or benefits of the platform that they could afford in their budgets. That's right. Yeah. We tried to kind of tear out the platform uh, so that like, if you're just getting started, you don't need everything. You can kind of go for a, for a lower tier if you're, you know, more uh, trying to like accelerate an existing grants process and you need some more advanced functionality or you work with like a couple more people on the team. Um, you can unlock a uh, additional features as you go up to our in in tiers and in price okay yeah and then the the platform if i if, if I, I can like walk you through it so basically what what happens when you start let's say you're at a nonprofit, you're a grant writer you would sign up um what you would do when you when you sign up is you'd fill out information on your first project to start and a project on instrumental maps to typically maps to different program areas at your organization so let's say one of your program areas that you're fundraising for is an environmental education program. And let's say you have other programs like an environmental conservation program and so on. You just start start with one of them, let's say um, environmental education, and you would fill out information about the organization as a whole, as well as information about that specific program. And then once your project is set up, it's it serves as a workspace for all of the work that you would do to both find and track grants. 
So within that project, you would have one component, which is your matches, which are our recommendations for grants you should check out. And these could be active grants, like active opportunities from any kind of funding entity, like it could be private, government, corporate, they'll all be there. And these are like active opportunities that you could you know, theoretically go to the website and actually find public information about how to apply. But we'll also match you to funders that may not have an active opportunity right now. There's lots of funders out there who, you know, it's like a family foundation, a family, they start a, they start a foundation. They don't necessarily want to create a website and kind of go through the process of really formalizing it. They just want to kind of give away funds based on what their family might decide every year. So the only way we can really know who this funder tends to give to is by looking at who they've given to in the past through their 990 tax filings. And so, and so we've done that. So we've like organized all of that information that they've put into their 990s. Um, and we, we can tell you based on who they've given to in the past and based on the information you fill out in your project, which of these invite only funders might you want to consider as well. Those will be like a bit of a different strategy. Of course, you might not, you're not going to be able to apply online, but you'll, this is where you'd want to like potentially leverage your board and, and um, utilize other relationship building strategies. But the good thing is you have all of these opportunities, both active as well as invite only in one place in an, in sort of an inbox that you can triage and very quickly save things to your tracker that you think are helpful or hide things if you don't want to see them again. And then in your tracker for that project, for that environmental education project, you'll start to see all the things that you're saving there from your matches inbox. And that tracker turns into essentially like your pipeline for the opportunities that you'd like to pursue. You can also add opportunities and funders that you might've been working on outside of instrumental. You can easily import all of that so that it can really serve as your, I like to call it like an, a magical, like always up to date spreadsheet, because once you add it to your tracker and instrumental, instrumental is actually monitoring those deadlines for you. And also those, um, those like kind of funder websites for you. So if anything changes on the funder website that relates to like the, the priorities of that grant um, or the deadlines, We'll actually send you an email that says, hey, like you were thinking of going after XYZ funder. Turns out they just changed their deadline. If you want to you know, make an update to your tracker, here's how you can do that. Um, and then on that tracker, you can also view things in a calendar view. Uh, make sure that you're on the same page with your team. So this is especially helpful if you have like a development director or an executive director, or like multiple people that are involved in the, in the process. Everybody can see the current state of every application in one place. You can easily create reports and send it to folks that you don't necessarily want on your account. And you can also like add in multiple people to your account as well if you do want them to be active collaborators. You've, you've generated so many questions for me already. <laughs> so, and and I, I'm, I'm trying to think through how to ask these because without getting sort of, you know, any more sort of detailed and technical in the use of the software, let me ask you this. Um, do funders utilize the so do you do you go out and acquire funders to also p participate in this software subscription on a funders end or is is that info is the funder information just information that your team curates and populates the software with right now it's primarily like 99 percent generated by our team so our team we build software for our internal team to be efficient in the way that they gather and organize information on grants and funders. And we try to automate as much of that process as possible. But there is some piece of it that does require a human element to really make sure we're kind of 
categorizing these grants and funders in the best way so that it's showing up, it's, we're able to give you the most relevant matches. We have in the past actually pursued uh, business models that brought in the funder as well. And we found uh, pretty quickly that, you know, from a funder perspective, because they're giving away money, there's not necessarily like a hair on fire problem for them to be mm -hmm. participating in a in like a marketplace or an ecosystem uh, where they could like potentially like directly connect with nonprofits. But on the nonprofit side, on the grant seeker side, they very clearly have a hair on fire problem around kind of the time and inefficiency it takes, the inefficiencies that exist in the grant seeking process. So we explored a marketplace approach, but then we brought it back to this kind of SaaS platform for like one side of the market, the grant seekers who had a, a really big need. Yeah, the more provider side, that makes sense. And as I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking in a local community for local funders, the relationship is probably more more important uh, than than even the content. And so, you know, most most community foundations, for example, they know the nonprofits in their community and vice versa. But when you started getting into regional and national funding resources and nonprofits who operate at a national or global level, then those connections become more and more important, I would think. Is that is that a fair assessment from your experience? I would say generally speaking, that's totally fair. Um, and, you know, also from on the flip side, like nonprofits that are getting started with grants, um, they will tend to prioritize local funders and so um, and tend to build up an understanding of who those local players are more quickly than they're able to kind of understand the the broader landscape. That being said, we've we've had plenty of instances of people using instrumental to to discover that there's a funder like in their backyard that they didn't really know about or they didn't mm -hmm. think they had an into. Um, so it's always worth uh, making sure you're really looking at a comprehensive data set uh, of opportunities out there from the grant seeking side. Um, but I would say broadly speaking, uh, that's totally right. Yeah. Is there an ideal, you know, who, who's the, to use a marketing term, you know, who is your avatar? Who is this software for? Is it for the new little community startup nonprofit that, that has a, you know, tiny staff and board and maybe they're serving a niche need, or is this more for the more sophisticated, fully staffed, larger? Is this, is this for the, you know, 10 to $100 million budget? kind of organ who is this for and is it for uh, to, to to further that who is it for is it for the sort of charitable kind of nonprofits or maybe also the advocacy or even the associations and membership kind of nonprofits who would you say this is ideally someone who should be looking who should be on the instrumental website right now looking <laughs> yeah that's a great question I, th I would say at a high level, at a super high level, there's two ways that we think about it um, in terms of the kind of personas that we work with. There's one persona that's really trying to figure out if grants are the right strategy for them or if they're going to be able to be successful with grants with their current circumstances, whether it's like know-how or team capacity. And then there's a second bucket of, of folks that ha have proven grants as a channel for them and want a way to kind of put... Um, gas on the fire or whatever that uh, analogy is and they're really ready to accelerate their grants work um we work with both groups uh and for folks that are just getting started with grants we we do um the way that instrumental works which is really great is that it almost like walks you through the process of learning how to do grants just like it's baked into the way that instrumental works so it can be really great for folks getting started that being said we do 
like I think there is like a minimum threshold to consider if you if you really are grant ready. Um, and the super super tiny nonprofits like under 90k, where this might be like the first fundraising chance to pursue, we tend to not like encourage them to work with us more so because they just may not be ready to be successful with grants in general. It's not really specific to our platform. And, uh, and but they're still welcome to try it if they're really, you know, excited about it. And maybe, you know, sometimes you have like folks from other that have started other organizations in the past and are starting a new nonprofit, but they're very, they have a lot of relationships with institutional funders or a lot of know-how with grants. And even though they're very small, they want to um, invest in grants early on. That tends to be like less, the, like less common. Um, but I would say that yeah, those are the two buckets at a high level. And in the first bucket, you still, even though you're starting to try to prove if grants are the right strategy for you, you still want to make sure that you're what we call grant ready. Is there a consultancy arm of instrumental or, or at the least, you know, the kind of support where just even figuring out whether or not this is for me and it can help me and which tier would be the most helpful and how do I get off the ground with it? We, for everybody that signs up for a 14 day trial, we actually connect them to what we call an onboarding advisor who will walk them through their free trial, activate them on their free trial, make sure that they're set up for success for the 14 days and talk to them about the right level of kind of instrumental that makes sense for them. And that could very well be like instrumental might not make sense for you right now. We have a lot of free resources on our blog uh, that we put out that are around grant readiness that can start to like get the wheel spinning internally at the organization to get yourself ready for grants. And then whenever you are ready, then, you know, it might make sense to pursue instrumental full on. Um, but we have these onboarding advisors that actually will provide this kind of like one-on-one -on -one guidance uh, to not, you know, not just help them walk through the tool, but also help them really think about how they should consider instrumental with the other landscape of, potential grant tools that they're considering and just generally understand grants in relation to the other fundraising strategies they're considering. Awesome. Okay. I, let me, let's get out of the software for just a second. Um, this is a podcast about leadership and you and I have talked offline about this and, and there's so many things now with regard to the mindset and something you said a while ago really triggered this for me. We were talking about the local nature versus the regional or national nature of funds, as well as the services that nonprofits are providing. And you said something to the effect of new or startup or small nonprofits tend to think locally, at least to start with. And I think that's true. And I also think that in particular, small nonprofits often think, oh, grants that we're too small, we could never get one. Or we could never get a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation grant or an Annie Casey grant or a Pew Foundation grant or like we, we could never get one of these big ones. We're just a small little nonprofit. Maybe maybe it's a, you know, a three or four hundred thousand dollar budget or less than a million or maybe maybe even they consider themselves at three million too small for those things. And sometimes it's just a, a, a matter of, you know, lack of experience. Now, other times, because I know this is a mindset in the sector, it's a scarcity mindset and it is a, we, we can't, um, and we don't. And I, I'm, I'm guessing you have, I'd love, if you have a, if you have a, a, you know, a specific example of where you have seen sort of the, the eyes opened of a nonprofit that realizes, man, there, there are resources out here who are interested in helping support the mission work that we're doing. 
And um, I'm just wondering if in your experience with your customers and now learning so much more about the nonprofit world and what they're dealing with, do you see this scarcity mindset in, in, um, in talking with people about your platform and grants and, and how might not necessarily might, how might instrumental help them with that. But what is your take on that? Is that, is that something you've noticed in the sector as you've learned more about specific nonprofits and your customers? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I think what you're what you're talking about is actually not the the typical example I give for scarcity mindset, uh, where somebody or an organization is maybe not thinking they're quite ready for grants and, and won't pursue that. Actually, often it's the opposite, where they kind of pursue grants in desperation when they're not quite ready for it. But I think both relate to this this kind of scarcity mindset. Um, happy to speak to that. One thing that I'll say before I jump in to talking about the scarcity mindset is that I feel always a, it's like helpful to have this disclaimer. I know that the, the scarcity mindset is like a big topic in the nonprofit space. And as we go into it, it might sound like we're at least that I'm kind of putting it all on the nonprofit when like really it's like a systemic issue in the ecosystem, in the philanthropic ecosystem and, and, you know, donors and funders play a big, a huge role in, in that mindset. So, and board members. I could not have yeah, said that members. better. That is, that is spot on. Yeah. So there's certainly things you can do as a nonprofit to kind of like, you know, um, you know, update your mindset that will help you. But, um, yeah, it's, it's worthwhile to acknowledge that it's not, it's, it, 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 the story is incomplete if that's like all we talk about. Right. And it's not to bash the nonprofits and say you, you idiotic scarcity mindset people. It really, it's a real thing and people feel it and they struggle with it and they, they want to break out of it. Totally. Um, so yeah, say, say more, say, say more about your experience with that. And how do you, how do you break down those things? I, I love your observation. I hadn't thought about that angle of a scarcity mindset of I'm applying for grants out of desperation because if we don't get some money in here quick, we're, we're going to have to close our doors. Yeah. I think in like a lot of what I see, um, or a lot of, a lot of it, I think can be helped by actually like narrowing your scope, especially when you're getting started as a nonprofit. I see that often folks are trying to prove their model while scaling, and that makes it really hard. They're trying to do a lot with without having actually proven that model and made it like a no-brainer for funders or for donors or even for themselves versus trying to actually focus on the smallest kind of unit of value or solution that they've provided to their community that can really demonstrate their need such that they can actually go out there and make it a no brainer for funders or for, um, or for donors. Mm. Um, so like my, my general advice, um, is to, you know, like, let's say, you know, simple example is like on geography. Like if you were, if you wanted to like kind of do something in like three different States and like you really kind of saw the need across three different communities, might it actually make sense to start in the smallest with the smallest scope possible so that you can kind of get some kind of impact data, outcome data that then makes it easier for you to tell your story and to, to make the case for how to um, how to raise funds. One of the things that's true about the about the institutional fundraising world and, and grants is that um, and this is true generally, but I think it's even more so true in, in the grants world is that because 
institutional funders are giving out larger sums of money, they will tend to be more risk averse and they will want to give in, they will want to give their money to entities that have had some past track record or demonstration of success uh, um, because of that. So I typically recommend folks try to think about the kind of smallest, kind of like almost like minimum viable program that they can uh, put out there using funds from individuals to kind of prove out that model. And then once they have some sort of, once they have metrics that they can show for success, that is like a good time to pursue or to consider pursuing institutional fu institutional funders. That's a fascinating model and I, I'm, I'm liking it and I've seen it. So you're talking about piloting something just to get some sort of metrics and framework that says, we know this works, we're ready to scale it and you can help us scale it. Is that, yeah, is that exactly. sort of what, yeah. Um, you know, I heard a, um, I'd love your take on this. I've talked about it a lot. There's a regional foundation in uh, Southern Virginia and <clears throat> they, one of these hospital conversion foundations has a lot of money for a town the size that they're in. And one of their philosophies was we're not looking to fund nonprofits who need our money or else we're looking to fund nonprofits. This was the phrasing they used. We want to fund things that are going to happen whether or not we fund it. We want to, we want to fund things that we know they've got the capacity to deliver on it. And they're so committed to it that yeah, that we could really help them scale it. But this isn't a, Hey, we'll do it. If this found, if our foundation happens to fund it, but if not, Oh, well, you know, we, we want people that, that they've got it. They've got a mission. They're committed to it. They have other resources and that we're funding something that actually already has capacity versus we are the capacity. Have you seen that? Yeah, I think that's, you know, that tends to be like a, a, a section that will have, that will be on grant proposals called like the sustainability plan. And I'm imagine, you know, I imagine that this is a really frustrating um, section to write and, and, you know, hearing those, like what you just mentioned from that funder can be really um, challenging for a nonprofit because they're, you know, they feel like they're in this kind of chicken and egg um, situation where they're trying to get funding to get something out the door. Um, but like I said, a lot of times funders, especially institutional funders just are not interested in taking huge risks. Like they want that, they want that outcome data and they want to make sure they're not because they're giving you like a hundred thousand dollars or maybe more that that's not, um, that, that, that they want to ensure that that's going to result in some sort of like long-term, yeah. uh, sustainable, sustainable success. I think that's part of it, the risk taking, but I also, I, th I think at least when I heard them sort of and watched them practice this, I think it was more about really trying to help promote an abundance mindset, mm -hmm. you know, write a grant with confidence that you are, you are in a position, you're in a unique position to, to execute on a mission that nobody else is executing on. And you've got the goods. You are the subject matter experts. You are the stat, you are the people that are going to do this and we can be a partner and an investor in it, you know, have that sort of abundance entrepreneurial mindset, not the, oh, our poor charity is going to shut our doors in three months because our cash flow is going to run out. And so we need this grant. So I do think part of it had, had, to, had to do with risk taking. And, you know, we do want to fund things that we think are going to be sustainable. 
but it, at least in the case of this particular foundation, I sensed that it was also um, a, a message to the sector. <laughs> yeah, and I can I can certainly see that, um, and that is something that I um, like you know would agree with as well. Like, it's a hard place to get to as a as a nonprofit, but it's um it's the right direction to try to try to figure out um, how how you can set yourself up from a program standpoint that um, you can either be sustainable like through earned, you know, earned income or uh, that you feel like kind of getting funding for this uh, to be sustainable long-term isn't going to be a problem. And it's worth thinking about that from the beginning. And the way that I like to think about it is that uh, when you have hundreds of billions of dollars getting given out like in philanthropic dollars, instead of seeing that money as like, like, well, there's one way to see that money, which is like kind of altruism. And then when you think about it that way, it kind of makes sense that you need to kind of convince donors or um, feel like you're sometimes even begging or feeling, you know, you're, you're, you have like an imbalance of power um, when you think about it as an altruistic gift. Mm -hmm. But when you think about it from the perspective of that, these donors and these funders, they actually have a problem to be solved. That's why they're giving away their money in reality, right? Like they have some sort of outcome in the world that they want to see they're not going to be the ones to actually do it and they're looking for you or your organization to make that happen and when you see yourself as the pro like a, a the organization is going to solve their problems it can help to kind of reframe that power dynamic and to um come from a place of like um you know having a default way to have your your program be sustainable uh, yeah i mean i think that's why you're you're platform to me seems to have potential to have a um a value add for the funders too because you're right they're not just sitting there going okay come to us we're the gods with all the money and we'll review your application if we like it we might give you some of it they are also you just said it perfectly they they have a mission to fulfill too some of them are family trusts some of them are you know they're holding a community trust like a hospital foundation where the community is expecting impact and outcomes and they don't always know who's out there that can do something or who might be willing to collaborate on a collective grant and do something. And so I, yeah, you're absolutely right. They, these funders have a mission to fill too. And you also really nailed it with the power imbalance. I've worked with, um, uh, a couple of organizations, um, who you know, one is, is an association of the, what we're calling the provider side, right? The nonprofits. And then one is an association of funders and they've merged in their, in their city. Um, and in the merger conversations around, look, we've got the philanthropic sort of funding side of the sector. And then we've got the, in the trenches out there doing it sector. And why do we keep these two separate? We're both trying to accomplish impact in our community, Let's do it together. And as they were going through the merger conversations, the power imbalance and how we navigate that and break it down is a real thing. And um, so, again, I just um, I, I just think it's very cool that through a software company, you're able to see, you you're seeing into those souls of how the nonprofit sector and philanthropic sector, some of the challenges that they deal with. Um, you know, a, another is the the capacity you can have a great software product but if you don't have the staffing capacity not just meaning volume but talent um you, you the software platforms just it's just costing you money and you're setting yourself up to fail and be even less efficient 
And boy, when you're in the world of, of fundraising in particular, talent is so important. Right now, so many nonprofits, as, as with the rest of the, uh, the workplace, is struggling to find talented people right now. Um, what's your, what has been your experience with the nonprofit's ability to leverage everything from their software platforms to their whole fundraising models, just based on the, the way that they foster and nurture their talent. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a non-trivial problem and it's something that, uh, you know, I'm sure every nonprofit leader is thinking about right now. I mean, to be honest, even I'm thinking, you know, every, every leader I think is thinking about that in the nonprofit world and the, and the for-profit world. Um, I think that the, the, the thing that I see in the nonprofit world and even in the, in early stage companies and for-profit is, is this idea that, um, that you need to have in the beginning of like needing to do more with less. And there's almost like no way around that, right? Like you are one person or you're two people. Um, like that's kind of a true, that's true. Um, but I think the thing that you can control is um, doing fewer things and and making sure that and trying to where possible um, works smarter and not harder by concentrating your efforts. And when it comes to talent, um, I think you know I think it's okay to be in an unsustainable place in the very beginning, right? With a plan to how it's going to be sustainable in the medium to long term. Um, so when you think about you know maybe you maybe you do have to convince, you know, the first person to kind of work for a you know, smaller amount than would be ideal or lesser amount than you would be ideal or, or like the first two people, but it should be baked into your plan how you're going to get out of that situation very as soon as possible so that overall you have a sustainable flywheel from that like minimum viable program um, with also the the kind of the, the right talent that you need um, to help deliver that minimum viable program, but then also to get to that next level. Uh, this is getting good now. <laughs> it really is. Um, so it, let's talk about your observation of nonprofits who are doing really well in fundraising. They're getting all the big grants. They're doing really well. They're growing. They're scaling. What are what do you see them doing differently in how they manage their people and and um, bring leadership to the table when it comes to that talent management? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is that. They fundamentally don't think that talent is expendable. Um, it can sometimes, I think, just you know, from from the outside, it can kind of some. I think some organizations can build a culture where they feel like, you know, again, kind of like from a scarcity mindset perspective, like there's no way they're going to be able to like have great retention. Like they're just kind of baking in the fact that people they're going to have a, a more rotating door of folks. And I think um, leaders in the nonprofit space that kind of get it are they have a different approach. Like they, they truly understand the cost of losing good people, which is, it's a tremendous cost. Um, so it's that, I think that difference in mindset and, and like kind of appreciation for good talent. And then I think the other thing that can also be really hard when you're, when you're a small nonprofit, when you're early stage is, is really um, accepting the fact that like everyone wants to grow in their careers. Everyone wants to learn things. Um, and that can be hard to balance those types of like growth conversations with your team and like almost like personnel conversations can be hard to balance when it feels like you're kind of fighting for survival. But I think great leaders in the space, they, they, you just have to kind of accept that that's um, part of it, um, that people do want to learn and grow and, 
and and there might not be a model for them to be able to do that right now but like um but that at some point like that again needs to be kind of thought of in the medium to long term like how how can you potentially support their learning maybe it's not somebody in your organization because your organization is three people but can you connect them to somebody outside of your organization that can help them level up in their um in their learning or in their in their career um and i would say like the last thing i'd say is is um the just like openness to feedback um empowering their team to run with things um while also being open to their feedback and like change themselves so what i'm hearing is intentionality <laughs> you know don't don't just you know hope that well you know tell your people yeah one day we hope to make enough money to pay you more or one day you know we'll get when we get to a place um, and not just hoping and, and stretching out this, um, this false hope, but literally I'd love your term baking it into your plan. It has to be intentional. There has to be a set of timed actions around what you, what you intend to do. I love that. Um, we've talked about inefficiency a little bit too. Tell me your take on this. I, I find that in some of the organizations I work with who struggle with what they think is a struggle with capacity from we don't have enough people that in reality they're dealing with one of two other issues. And that is you don't have the right people. You have enough positions. You, they're just not the right people or you have enough and you have the right. You're just not using them optimally. And you're, you, you have um, part of your production is inefficient because you're not using the capacity you have to their fullest. Everyone says, well, we're stretched so thin. We can't do one more thing. Eh. <laughs> Usually that's not the case. Usually it's, yeah, we can um, maybe with trade-offs. I love what you said earlier to don't try to do everything. Um, find your core competencies and be really good at that. But you know, a lot of these things are intersecting in my mind, um, inefficiency, talent, scarcity. Um, but what's, what's your take on that? I, I, I just think capacity has as much to do with these efficiency pieces as it does with who we have and how many people we have. Would you agree? Agree. Totally. Yeah. And I think like you mentioned, and I think it's worth saying again, one of the, you don't have a lot of levers when you're getting started to like change the, the, the kind of whole flywheel of your model. But one of the biggest levers you have is your scope. It's like your ability to like concentrate your efforts and do fewer things and do them better such that you can get to that next step as opposed to like trying to do everything at once. So I think that's like kind of my, there's one kind of piece of advice that I, that I would give it be that. I think the other piece around having the right talent uh, is really important. I think one of the exercises that I, uh, have found helpful for myself is to think about, you know, the, the goal that you're trying to achieve or the outcome that you're trying to achieve, um, and work backwards in, in the, and figuring out what the team structure is and the team needs to look like, regardless of who your team currently looks like. So instead of thinking about, you know, how you put, you know, Sally and Joe into like various buckets, you actually just think about the titles and the roles you need on your team, uh, in abstract. And you might realize you actually need a different configuration of people, or you might realize you need fewer people, but maybe you need more senior people. Um, but having this thing that's disconnected from your current team really helps because oftentimes that can really hold you back from an emotional standpoint to really assess what you actually truly need to get to that next step. Um, 
And then your other piece around working efficiently, I um, totally agree with as well. I think I see that a lot. Um, you know, I think that comes a lot in in the nonprofit space, especially when nonprofits are uh, evaluating software. Um, I think that uh, like one thing that I like to uh, encourage folks to do is like, you can like think about, you know, when you think about that ideal set of people that you need to deliver on certain outcomes, you know, oftentimes those you want those people to be really focused on the most important things and the things that really differentiate you as an organization. There's a lot of stuff that you probably don't want them to be spending their time doing because that means that they're not able to spend time on the things that really matter. So what are the th what are those things? How can you automate that? And like one exercise that I encourage is just like, you know, if you think about their time spent on things that you think are not the things that are really going to move the needle for you or be able to move the organization forward, like what is their general hourly rate and like how much are you spending on that um, to give you an understanding of like, um, you know, how the ROI might be worth it if you were to invest that into like a tool that might automate some of that. Wow. <laughs> you hit on something, by the way, that I use a lot. So it's affirming and I'll repeat it. And that is this whole idea of, I call it the blank sheet of paper um, when you're talking about your staff needs and, and who you have. And you're right. They have, there's this, you go into it and go, well, you know, but what would I do with, you know, Bill? And what, what about mm -hmm. Susie? Um, and so I'll often say, you know, if you had a blank sheet of paper and you look at your scope of work and what it is this organization needs, start with a list of what do we need in this organization? What talents and gifts does this organization need? Not not even to start with positions, um, but what are, you, what are the talents and needs? What are the competencies needed and why? And then start saying, okay, how would I align? How would I build a structure of talent such that those competence, that there's, there's a place for those competencies. And, and then how would I, how would I fill that up and still remain agile? You know, one of the things I found is that you, when you, when you bring in, you, you can be as creative as you want in designing a position, but once you hire the person, you're learning things about that person that you didn't know just out of an interview. And it takes some time and you might find they have other gifts and talents that are better utilized over here or, and so there, it, everything has to be sort of fluid and, and agile and the ability to kind of move things around. But I love that you said that you said backing into it, which I think is a great, great way to put it. I'm hearing just it, your insights, Gary, are just so I'm in my coaching experience. I'm listening to these things going, man, these, this is so spot on. And I'm going to be honest with you. And this isn't to insult you, but I'm going, this is a, this is a software developer that has a real um, pretty perceptive insight on the culture of the nonprofit sector and, and the nonprofit workplace and mindset. But I'm sensing as you go through these principles of leadership that these are things you've experienced just as an entrepreneur and in a business startup. You know, how have you, where are these things that you've experienced and developed? What are the big leadership lessons you've learned in creating a company from scratch and having now, I don't know how many employees you have now, but you know, you, you're scaling a, a company. You're, you're not a software developer anymore. You're a leader, <laughs> you know, you're an organizational leader getting the best out of people. And these are the tenants I'm hearing from you and they're just impressive. And so how are you applying these and how have you learned these in the business world as a, as a, I, I would, I don't know if I'd call you a serial entrepreneur, but you're a multiple entrepreneur. 
How, how are these relating? And is this where you're getting your, your insight from? Because it's powerful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think, um, you know, uh, to be transparent, and I think it's clear, like I have not worked in a nonprofit myself. So, mo- you know, I think most of this comes from my own experience running an early stage young company. And I think there's a lot of um, similarities there with running a, you know, getting a, getting a nonprofit or any sort of like kind of project off the ground, just like all of the sacrifices you have to make, all of the, uh, just like the roller coaster of emotions that you go through, the the learnings that you, you know, have on yourself about, you know, you just, the, the one of the things I love about business and starting something from scratch or like putting yourself in a position where you're trying to do something so hard as to like start a company or start a nonprofit is that um, I think to be successful, you have to like keep growing yourself. Um, So, so that's um, certainly been um, like where a lot of this uh, comes from is just like my own journey as an entrepreneur. And then of course, like, um, especially when we were getting started, I was talking to, you know, 10 nonprofits a day, like learning about their pain points around fundraising, learning about their pain points around talent. One thing that we didn't talk about in terms of my, like the journey getting into this instrumental, where instrumental is today is that when we shifted our focus from academia, academia to the nonprofit space, we, we actually spent a year trying to figure out what was the most important starting point for us to focus on in the nonprofit market. We thought it was around grants and fundraising because that's where we had come from in the academic world. But especially because I was new to the nonprofit space, I actually spent quite a lot of time interviewing nonprofits. This is when we were interviewing funders as well. I'm really trying to understand like the whole market and the whole landscape. And um, a lot of the ideas we pursued were not just in the fundraising world. Um, A lot of it actually was in talent because the, one of the number one problems you'll hear is around capacity. Um, but that was a really informative uh, part of my journey is just actually talking to so many different organizations. And listening to them. Uh, you know, that I, that what a great leadership lesson for our nonprofit leaders out there, you know, be listening to our community, listening to our donors, understanding their pain points. What a great, what a great uh, tie in there. Um, Man, I, I could r- really go on. I, I I love what you're doing because it's not just. I mean, there's software programs all over the place. Um, you you have. It sounds to me like you truly have dug into a purpose of really f- solving a problem and and managing those pain points for the for a for an entire sector as a mission. So I I really appreciate that. I have a, a couple of questions for you um, to sort of wrap the show. The, and these are questions I like to ask every guest because I just love the answers and we're always growing to by hearing other people. Um, who is a leader in your life? <clears throat> you can name one or if you want to name two, that's fine too. But I love the stories of how people have been impacted by the leaders before them. Um, I mean, I, I certainly have a ton of them. But who is a leader that jumps to your mind as someone who has had tremendous impact on your view of leadership, your, your success, your business mindset, your boldness, your, I mean, it takes a lot to start up. A, I mean, it's a, it's a bold thing and there's a lot of things that you have to do. Who, who's someone in your life, a leader that has sort of helped shape that journey and, and point of view on leadership for you? There are two 
um, two people that come to mind. One person, I'll collectively reference my parents. <laughs> and um, that's one of the things that my parents um, really instilled in me, which which I'm very grateful for, is this idea that like you can really solve any problem. Like you can tackle any any problem. You can really be as ambitious as you want. Um, and that definitely just helped me feel like entrepreneurship and starting a company was something that I was like capable of doing. Mm. And um, yeah, I think that that was a really powerful thing to just like have as an expectation. Um, and then the other is my, one of my managers at Airbnb. Um, he worked at Apple for 10 years and on the first iPhone and worked at Airbnb as, as a product leader. And one of the things that I saw, and he was a software engineer um, as well, but kind of, you know, wasn't writing code anymore. But one of the things that I observed from watching him was that he was able to do this really amazing thing where he would be able to have this like, you know, 10,000, 50,000 foot view of, of like kind of thinking into the future, thinking about the strategy and the direction. But the, the people that he managed and people that reported to him were, they were like in the weeds, like building the thing. Um, and he, when they had questions or when they were blocked, he was actually, you know, he had enough context and he was like still so in touch with the, the nitty gritty there that he was able to actually add value and provide guidance at a very like hands-on level when needed. Um, and I think that combination of being able to like, you know, he obviously has grown in his career has like taken on more and more responsibilities, um, was not going to be the one kind of like crunching numbers and, and coding himself, but he, because he did that so much himself for so long and was so good at it, you know, back in the day, he was able to like really retain that and stay in touch to make him an even more powerful leader. And I just thought being able to like tie that like big picture with the ability to like see the details um, was a really powerful combination to to have and to strive for as a leader. That's a, it's a really a rare quality when someone can cha can transition from technical performer to effective leader. You know, when you have this competency in an area that you're just really good at it, and then you come up through the ranks and you end up in a leadership position, so many leaders that I work with have a difficult time moving that from that performer level of, oh, I'm still a developer. I've got to, I've got to keep developing. This is how I lead. I keep developing and I show people that this, but you don't, you have to make a transition and say the job now is not development of software. The job now is development of people. And that's a tough transition to make. And so I, that one really resonates with me. And of course, parents always do that. The impact that we have as parents and sometimes don't realize it is powerful. My last question for you is um, I like to ask the sort of 20 second soundbite question, which is what is your, what would you say is your number one, kind of your top paramount principle or tenet of leadership? If, if um, you know, if you had 20 seconds to, to where, where the whole world had to stop and listen over a megaphone and all the leaders of the world had to hear your perspective on something, what is that? What is, what do all leaders need to know and keep in mind from Gary Munglik's perspective? Just a little tiny question, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think the, my number one uh, piece of advice on leadership is to really embrace and acknowledge that you have unknown unknowns, um, that people perceive you and relate to you and see you in ways that you are probably not fully aware of. And it's part of your job to 
continue to try to dig into those unknown unknowns by seeking feedback, by being humble, by having a coach yourself, by having a therapist, by just continuing to try to, um, you know, tr try to do better and realize that um, the world and people and everything is so complex. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of unknown unknowns. Unknown unknowns. Yeah, we don't know what we don't know. In the leadership coaching world, regard, we call those blind spots. And it's why we do like 360 assessments, for example, is to help illuminate some of those blind spots leaders have, because we all have them. We all have them. Gari, thank you. Um, hey, before we wrap up, give us the website. Yeah, it's instrumental.com. Instrument and then the letter L.com. Yeah, so the, leave the A out of the end on, on spelling the word instrumental. Um, we'll put it on the show notes. So, uh, check the, check the show page. If you're listening to this through your Apple podcast or whatever, go to our website at jinxperspective.com, go to podcast, get this episode and we'll have, uh, we'll have the link there. Lots of resources on the site. It's not just a software company. There's some great blogs and resources for you there as well. So check it out. Gary, thank you so much. Thanks for what you're doing to uh, contribute to the world and the stuff we're doing and for certainly for carving out time for me and our listeners here. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Lead on folks. 